Welcome to the State of Minds podcast, where we pick the brains of the best minds in neuroscience today. This is a podcast of the Graduate School of Systemic Neurosciences at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, made possible thanks to the generous support of Lena Bittel and Sven Schwan. current because she hasn't defended her thesis GSN student. We cover topics such as productivity, how to choose and manage multiple projects, what science communication is and should be, how to reach different target audiences, and whether Munich is a good place to attempt science communication. We do hope that it is, and I encourage you to go to Science Soapbox on Saturday 7th of July from 2 to 5 in the afternoon to find out about the setup, listen till the end when Victoria explains schedule and this and briefly talks about the speakers. Of course to enjoy the event just bring yourselves to the Munich City Center on Saturday July the 7th from 2 to 5 at Odeonsplatz. And now to our conversation with Victoria. position that you're in which is scientific coordinator right so i'm currently a trainee at the coordination office of the impress program it's impress impress states for international max Planck research school in our case that's for molecular life sciences we are based in mpi of biochemistry but our students or students from our program work in different institutes in munich mpi biochemistry neurobiology but also lmu and tum yeah so we are quite spread and what i'm doing there is that i'm helping in coordination of the exactly the graduate program i am personally responsible for organization of the workshops of the soft skill workshops mm-hmm. of the organization of um, seminars that we have every half a year the impress seminar is where students present their research mm-hmm. so if we compare it to gsn it's a bit differently organized at the retreat students actually get to rest more because they don't need to present anything at the retreat which we have once a year but they need to present on one of the seminars, which are twice a year, so in summer and uh, in December. A retreat I'm also organizing, so taking care of the program and the location. For example, for this year, I found that the place to go Austria, talked with a trainer who is going to organize the workshop for us during the retreat, yeah, and organizing also all transportation and the, this kind of stuff. And also I'm managing the uh, Impress newsletter. So we have a newsletter which is issued two to three times per year, where we write about the news from the Impress and the scientific topics of our students and what is happening with the alumni of the program, what's happening around the campus, something interesting, celebrate the awards our students and professors get. You've transitioned before even finishing your thesis, so I was wondering how difficult is it to keep working on both on your thesis and on your day-to-day activities? That's a good question. 
it's rather challenging i think because yes i i have finished with experimental work and i have finished with data analysis before i left the lab so before i changed but uh, the text of the dissertation was only half written and it's true that it's rather tricky to manage writing when you have a day job from nine to five at least but uh, it's doable so now i'm getting really really close to finishing the text which is making me very happy but i really think that i will submit differently this year and if everything goes fast and maybe also defend this year mm -hmm. i would not recommend this too much mm -hmm. so if you have a possibility to calmly write your thesis while still being in the lab and being paid then that's great if it's not the option which was in my case then uh, you need to think what are the options. In my case, uh, on one hand, yeah, my contract was finishing and my professor wasn't able to extend it. So I would have to write some extra time after I left the lab. But at the same time, I found a job pretty fast and it was actually the position I was looking for. So I applied to several places and for the similar kind of jobs. And this one was really nice i really like the people in the office and i still do so i don't regret <laughs> my choice they wanted someone to start as early as possible so i thought about it and thought okay I, this is a chance i cannot miss so i decided to start immediately after i left the lab in the end it's taken me longer to finish than it would have taken me if I I was writing on a daily basis. It's happening still. So what was the process for looking for a job? So especially because you are an international student, what, mm -hmm. do you think it was a bit more difficult for you than for native German speakers? Okay, if we talk about the language, I think it really will depend on the kind of job you want. So I know a lot of people in Munich who found a job with really poor German or even almost no German because they had some other skills which were valuable for a job and because their daily work does not require German. For me, I do speak German with my colleagues and especially I do speak German with uh, some administrative and technical staff mm. of the institute and my level is okay for this. So my level of German is okay. I can express myself and I can understand what people want from me. I'm of course doing a lot of mistakes, but then it's in the end, it's working out. Mm -hmm. But probably I would say if I want to move on with a similar kind of job and have a higher position, for example, being main coordinator of the program, then definitely I need much better German because then I will have to interact much more in German and maybe also write some official documents in German. How the process works is I think the first step is always you need to have some ideas what you want to do. At least this is what I would recommend and this is what, how I approach the job. So I started thinking of what I want to do maybe something like two years ago. So when it was, it was kind of far from finishing, but also not that far. I still, I thought I would have finished earlier, which I didn't, but anyways, yeah, I started thinking what, what I would like to do, what kind of jobs are out there. And I think this is an important step because if you know the area you would like to work in, then you also apply in a more meaningful way mm -hmm. and you, your applications are making more sense to the potential employers, so they are more attractive. Yeah, and when I was finally looking for a job, which I started doing around this time last year, so in summer, I knew what kind of jobs I was looking for. I actually only applied to three places in the end because I already got this offer in August and they were all similar. So I was checking the um, job websites and whenever there was something, then 
I would apply or, or something which suited my interests. And I think a very important part of the application is, of course, that you really write the um, application personalized and specific for the job you're applying for. It should not be a spam email that you send to everyone with the similar stuff. Even the your resume or CV should be adjusted to the job because uh, even similar jobs might have a little bit of different focus. Mm-hmm. For example, the other two jobs I applied for, one was at TUM, which was also a trainee position at the graduate program, at the coordination office of the graduate program. And for them, was what was important is that you have some experience with IT and working with some software to organize something. And there, for example, I highlighted that I have created an online course, which shows that I'm somehow able to work with a computer. The other job I applied for was in Bonn, and it was for a newly established graduate program where they were looking for people with international experience specifically because it was a collaborative program with, I think, Australia, if I remember correctly now. And they, of course, wanted people who have experience living abroad. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for example, coming back to the being an international student, I think in this case, it would have been good actually for me to be international. Yeah, and so this is what I highlighted mm-hmm. also in my CV and in my cover letter. Well, the, the skills you mentioned are not specific to science, but I was wondering because there is always this sort of justification for people who are not sure but still go for a PhD. They say, whatever I end up doing afterwards, science is such a great training that the skills that I acquire during my PhD for sure will transfer somehow in whatever occupation Will come next mm-hmm. but i haven't seen many examples of that H- have you experienced it yourself and among the people that you know have you mm. observed that happening well what people usually mean i think is that when you do a phd you develop certain transferable skills which actually have nothing to do with science but rather with mm-hmm. that phd being a rather tough project it's a long project with sometimes even uncertain end uncertain results and all the frustration on the way and also you have to be quite independent and being able to cope with the stress and the challenges on your own so this is what you develop stress resistance and problem solving and also i think what is important to develop during your phd is actually asking for help so you have to learn how to ask for help because on one hand this is what will help you with your phd but also this is an important skill to identify the experts to um, reach out to and also to identify the situations where it's much more efficient to ask someone to help you rather than struggle yourself for months without uh, any results. So you certainly develop some kind of transferable skills mm-hmm. like that. Personally, would say this is not a good enough excuse to do a PhD if you're unsure <laughs> because still it will be challenging. There are maybe better ways or easier ways to develop these skills. But if if there is something additional to that, so you actually are interested in the research topic you are wanting to work with, then maybe that's worth doing. Otherwise, if you intend to work in an area related to science, then certainly your scientific training is helpful. Like for me, for example, I'm certain this is helpful because first of all, I can talk to our professors and our PhD students in a meaningful way and on one hand I understand them, on the other hand they know I can understand them and they also have a certain level of respect to me because they know I'm from kind of the area and I'm not the 
person with a management education who has no idea about science. So if you're going to work with scientists, then certainly having um, science education is is good and having a PhD is probably even better. Yeah, but still you could argue that having a PhD is a bit too time consuming only to be able to justify yourself in the eyes of uh, your future conversation partners and professors and students because, I mean, still I would play a bit of a devil's advocate and insist that there aren't many tasks, as far as I know from also talking to our coordinator, our grant coordinator, that really require like deep scientific knowledge. It's really mm. a lot of, more about organization and being precise, accurate and on time, but then you don't have to mm-hmm. spend four years of your life in misery <laughs> to, to be able to do that. Yeah, well, I agree with you on one hand, because as I said earlier, yeah, just going for the transferable skills or thinking this is good for your career is probably not a good enough reason to do the PhD because yes, that's long and it can actually really damage psychological, mental and physical health sometimes. So for this, I think you have to be aware of. And I would say probably having a master's in science is already good enough Mm -hmm. to work with scientists. Maybe even a bachelor and some experience in working in research is also good. On the other hand, I have to say, in this job of scientific coordinator, the tasks can really vary. And I also talked with other coordinators from the other IMPRESS programs, and they have a bit of a different approach to what they do. And some of them, for example, do the proofreading of the PhD thesis for their students. This is, of course, only possible if the school itself is not very big. But in this case, they do provide some scientific expertise mm-hmm. to the students. Yeah, also depends how how big is the coordination office. Sometimes it's one, just one person, and then this person has to do a lot of different jobs, including some more science-related jobs. And that has some other cases, it's several people, and then they can separate the jobs and... Not all of them have to be scientists in this case. Uh, the area of science management is a very diverse area and there are positions which are more research, uh, coordination of research groups, maybe including coordination of some money. And then you certainly need to know more. Being a good conversation partner is maybe not a good enough reason, but having respect from the people you work with is important, especially when you have to justify your decisions and especially if these decisions are not in favor of your par- conversational mm-hmm. partner. So you've been in this position for a year now, more or Not less. yet, well, half a or like seven months, eight well, months, yes. <laughs> in any case, a long enough amount of time to mm-hmm. have a, more than a first impression of, mm. of the fit between what you thought the job was going to be and what it is in reality. So do you think that you were right in let's say, matching your skills with this job or that you developed new skills that you didn't expect that you would need? I think so far my expectations match the reality. I Overall, I like the job. I enjoy that it's very diverse job and I have a variety of different tasks. And this also brings something which I need to learn more. So the, this is managing several different projects at the same time, which you don't do so much as a PhD student. Well, it might depend on what exactly your project is like. My project was more very straightforward, so you do one step after another. And in this case, like being a science coordinator in the graduate program, I have to manage in parallel several things. Like I have to coordinate the workshops, which are going all like one after another throughout the year. I have to arrange the retreat, which comes once per year. And then I have to organize the seminars, which come every half a year. 
and then a newsletter comes with a different frequency and stuff like this and there are some always incoming stuff which pop out now and then and you need to uh, prioritize the things uh, understand w which one is more important to do at this specific moment but also not to forget something which you have postponed so sometimes you can postpone but then you should come back to this and this is something i I thought I kind of knew because of my extracurricular activities, but actually I think I, I got to a different dimension of this. So I'm still learning a bit. What else you need to, what I need to do a lot and what I need to learn maybe a bit more to interact with people a lot and especially via email, because every day I spend quite some time answering emails uh, from our students, from workshop trainers, sometimes professors and administration. I think you need to also develop some habits which help you to do this fast, efficient, not to forget things. I think also something interesting is how to write an efficient email. So how to write an email that people will read, understand and um, do what you want them to do. Tell me. <laughs> I'm all ears now. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, I haven't formulated yet the rules. I, it's also something I'm learning, I think. And I'm also learning from my boss who sometimes gives me advice on how to write. And what's the difference between you writing a professor to a professor and to a student. Yeah and how to be aware of the um, cultural differences, for example, between Western and Eastern uh, cultures, how to find a middle ground between being very direct, which German people would expect, and being very uh, being still polite, what the, our Asian students would like to hear. I think that so, so far for me that was more coming with practice. I don't think I have any, any guidelines in my head now and I think I'm still trying to be, get better in this. But do you have any time management tips or rules that you use for yourself? Like you mentioned that you need to keep track of the projects and the tasks that you need to accomplish. So do you use to-do lists or like Pomodoro mm -hmm. with chunking your mm -hmm. working time? I use different things and I think what is something which is important to remember is that all the different time management techniques are there to help you and you shouldn't become slave of something. So I do change things on the go sometimes and there are periods when I extensively use my... So there are days when I use my journal a lot uh, writing down the tasks for each day, writing down what I'm going to do. There are weeks when I don't use it at all because, for example, I have a rather long a project which I'm working more or less every day on and I don't have many different tasks, but sometimes I have so many different tasks that I really need to write them down. I often have to-do lists um, divided into different projects just to keep track of different things but i'm not that i try not to become a slave of something if i stopped using the to-do list uh, for a while doesn't mean that it doesn't work it just means it wasn't helpful at this particular time and it's fine and when i need it i go back to this i actually do use pomodoro in several cases first i use pomodoro a lot to write my thesis mm -hmm. and i think this is super helpful when you need to do something which is big and also which is not making you especially happy about this so you, when you need a bit of incentive to start with this then it's easier to agree to work for a certain amount of time than tell tell yourself okay i'm going to do this and you never you don't know what's the end and in my 
coordination job, I use this when I have a lot of different small tasks and it sometimes even looks overwhelming that I have so much to do and then I do the Pomodoro. So I sit for 25 minutes and I just do tasks one after another and then take a break, then I repeat that. And usually with uh, two, three cycles, it's already getting much better. So I also use this when it's is suitable much better i want to focus on that and coming back also with the phd and being independent and self-reliant because mm -hmm. how do you know whether you're getting better how do you assess yourself how do you get feedback when there is no one to provide you feedback uh, getting better at what at anything so anything. so how, how do you know that you are more efficient mm. or that you're doing so if it's phd that you're doing well that you're on track Hmm. Let's say with the PhD, I don't know. I think it's really hard. <laughs> I think with the PhD, honestly, your supervisor has to provide you feedback, and this is how it should be. And it's really, really sad when it doesn't work like that, especially in your early years as a PhD student. In the first one, two years, I think you have to have a feedback. And my advice to PhD students would be: if your supervisor is so busy that doesn't have that he has or she doesn't have time for the feedback for you, or the feed, you see that the feedback is not really meaningful, just also because the person doesn't really know what's mm -hmm. happening, uh, try to find yourself a mentor, so a person who will care and who will give you some meaningful feedback can be maybe a postdoc from your lab or maybe a person from your talk um, uh, who cares and with whom you can meet regularly maybe just once a month doesn't also doesn't have to be often but with whom you can assess how well you're doing mm -hmm. i think this is important for myself or my some let's say personal things one thing which i do is to yeah sometimes at the end of the day think back what i actually did and sometimes even write down things to to see if if i did well today and from for example from this kind of exercise i know that when i'm working with uh, pomodoro I'm I'm more efficient than doing going without it because then I can manage more things. I think self-reflection is something which definitely is the main way to do that. That you reflect and try to reflect objectively, not and think of the things you have done rather than the things that you haven't done. That's probably the important thing that I had to learn in maybe last two years. Because you, if you keep thinking of the things you could have done but you haven't, then you feel very bad and sometimes you disregard how many things you actually have finished and it's yeah it's important to realize that and you have to remember you have only so many hours in your day you cannot do something which is not physically realistic yeah exactly and while self-reflection is great i think it's hard for people who are perfectionists because they they mm. just set unrealistic goals for themselves and like no matter how hard you try you always fall short and Especially when it's a new area where it's not really clear what is realistic, mm. even, even if you are not a perfectionist. I think talking about the first two years of the PhD, it's really hard to know whether you are doing well or where you are. I agree, but I guess also the mentor advice is is helpful for those of us who are at the beginning. With all the balls that you are trying to juggle <laughs> aside from your job you have 15 by 4 science box and then some additional projects in russian and this online course that you mentioned so first of all how do you choose what you're going to work on yeah i have additional to uh, at this point of my life uh, in addition to my day job and writing up the thesis i do have some additional projects several of them are connected to science communication this is 
15 by 4, uh, Pint of Science and Soapbox Science. Then I have a student consulting project in Russian where I have the online course and I do one-on-one -on -one consultations. And when I call all of this project, it sounds like a lot, but in real life, they don't happen all at the same time and they have a different workload. And for example, with my student consulting project, this is completely independent of any other people except me and I can decide on my own how much time I want to and I can invest and I would say since beginning of this year I did not do so much in this project because I was dedicating more time to my thesis. What helps me in general to structure my time is first the calendar, which I think is super duper important because then you can you can work on different projects simultaneously because you dedicate specific times to this and sometimes also i write down the time not only the meetings with other people but also when i'm going to work on something on my own like i'm going to sit for two hours and work on something this i sometimes also write down in the calendar just not to forget that i wanted to do that and i should not uh, give this time to something else. Uh, how do I decide what to do? I would say this is not, I don't have a structured approach to this. It's rather... Yeah, but what I meant more was, so would you proactively seek out a new project or would you uh. like wait for someone to approach you? And like, would you take up something that you would love to do or something that would advance your career goal? So like, why do this old project appeared in my life, kind of? Yeah. You know? in different ways they appeared some of them i proactively wanted to implement for example uh, softbox science i was in berlin may last year and i talked to some people who organized softbox science in berlin and i thought this is a cool project so when i was back i wrote them an email asking can we also how can i also make it in munich yeah. and then how that's how it started and then i found people in munich who helped me uh, basically it's all gsn students i think yeah, more or less. It's all the GSN uh, student organized event this year. The other project, people came to me and asked if I would like to join. For example, end of this week, I'm going to Russia where I'm going to participate in organization, but also teach something at the summer school for undergraduate students. And in this case, my co-organizers wrote to me some months ago asking if I would like to join this project. And since the project was in line with my interest i thought yeah i will i thought a bit about this and said yeah if this is because of my interest or my career goals this is a funny question because i think well my career goals are my interests. it's not that they're separate things i think this is the the advisable probably way mm -hmm. so on one hand i do the projects which i'm interested in projects which are mostly connected to science because i i like science and i like being around scientists, but also I can see that they add something to my portfolio and then I could use them to develop my career. Probably the career related part is that when I join a project, I think what exactly can I do within this project? And I would rather choose something which will develop some of my some of my skills which I don't have yet or and then maybe I do something which I never tried yet uh, to develop these skills rather than just repeat the same tasks in all the projects I do and then in the end it's both fun because I do something which is connected to my interest but also in most cases this is also development of some skills which I did not have before so in all your projects do you find that you are mostly reaching people who are already interested in science and are in science or mm. aspire to be in science like undergraduates or in fact, postgraduate, but in other fields. Hmm. 
but who may find themselves interested. In this way, my projects are also different, which I also think is interesting. It's nice to be working in a bit of different, for different target audience. So my consultation project is about con consulting on scientific careers. And this is for undergraduate students who are already studying science. The, the science communication projects are actually different. So the 15 by 4, for example, we are reaching quite a wide audience with something like 60% people being from IT, which I think is partially because we are hosted like like our location is within the IT company. Several of two of our team members are from IT with the Pint of Science project, for example, the audience is very different. It's approximately half are scientists and half are non-scientists. And from and the scientists who come to Pint of Science events, they are coming mostly from a different field. So they just interested to know something about the different the field they don't they don't work. With the soapbox science, we will have something else, I think, which I don't know yet what it will be. The hope is that this will actually reach the people who don't usually go to science-related events, because the soapbox science is different as it will be outside. This will be on the Adionsplatz on Saturday, so we hope to have many people walking around and just stopping by because something is happening there. And then they will unexpectedly get to listen to some science talk. How it will work, we will see. I think it's hard to predict. Germany is, has quite a special landscape of not so much science communication happening in general. And it's hard to say, is it because people are not so much interested or just because it did not develop yet? I don't really know. So we will see who, who will be the audience. But don't you think that Munich is a little bit different because there is this open science initiative housed in, in LMU? Have you been in any way connected to them? Because at least mm. in the US and in the UK, open science and science communication initiatives are usually elite forces. There is Open Science Center, which just opened recently at the LMU. Yeah. I was at some point, end of last year, I was in contact with the guy who initiated that from the psychology department, but recently I wasn't. And I think this is actually a good example of how science communication and outreach, I'm making the quoting marks with my hands right now, it <laughs> works in Germany, it comes from the institutions and the, like the government and the institutions, they understand that this is important, that they have to show that the money of the taxpayers are spent well, so they have to show what they are spent for. But the approach that they choose is mostly very rigid and it does not really kindle a spark in, in people. That's my feeling so far. The institutes, like for example, Institute Max Planck, and LMU, they organize some science communication lectures, but I have to be honest, who comes to them are the elderly. Uh, there are also events for students, or uh, sorry, for school children, which is great. I think it's important that we also show children what science is about, like they are open, open days at the LMU, at the Max Planck's, and they have, um, in Max Planck, biochemistry has a laboratory for school children where they always, uh, there are always people coming, but the main part of the but yeah in the end we reach the the young and the old but we don't reach the most important people the adults who are making decisions in real life in nowadays mm -hmm. and i think with this uh, open science center it's going with a similar approach at least for now it's it's coming from the institution they they make it look good on the paper like they have the nice uh, arrangements, the lectures, 
and I don't know what. They work with scientists, but I don't see how they're going to reach to the people. But don't you think that it, actually that's exactly the right approach that they're taking? If you are aiming for this demographic of, let's say, middle-aged professionals, for them, it's not the best framework to have this open day because i mean why why would they sacrifice their saturday or whatever to to go to some far away off the beaten track campus to to look at some machines that have nothing to show them really and on the other hand like hanging out with phd students who are most of them way younger in the evening with some informal lectures is also a little bit i guess for them out of the frame that they are thinking in. and i would say that maybe it's the right approach to have an institution backing it because i'm basing my impression on the center of for advanced studies lectures mm -hmm. that i've attended something like five times mm -hmm. or so so they they organize this evening lectures i think several times a semester with the visiting mm -hmm. scholar and they're open and there i mean it's almost always packed and almost always with this like people in slick suits and like ladies after work with their briefcases mm. and i wouldn't say that the content is such a higher level or that it's diff very different but the fact that it, it is center for advanced studies and it has this elitist flair mm -hmm is definitely attracting people more or at least attracting them full stop rather than some like cheeky 15 minute presentation which is great for us i mean for young people it's great but for this demographic mm. i would think maybe the germans have the point i don't know do you think they are i never been to this lectures unfortunately but do you think they are non-scientists who come there yeah i mean definitely yeah. well with 15 by 4, we actually reach exactly non-scientists a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think this is because non-scientists are also involved in the organization of the events. And they are welcomed and they can come up with the ideas and they part of the organization team. And I think this is what's making a difference why the Max Planck uh, Wissenschaftsjedemann lectures are visited by the elderly people and mm -hmm. why our 15 by 4 lectures are visited by everyone is that the citizens want to be involved. They want to actually have a dialogue. They don't want to be lectured. They want to participate and when they can, then they are enjoying that. And then this is when we actually can show them the science is cool. Uh, better here, but I, I mean, uh, I always also question the initial premise of all of this because I often hear the taxpayer needs to see where the money goes but I'm not sure where this taxpayer is because I mean it's, it's in the scientist's mind but I haven't seen many people of this again middle-aged demographic who are actually the ones that are making most of the money that everyone is uh -huh. spending who would be interested in holding someone accountable. I mean, they don't have time, they don't have interest, I, I don't think. This is not my impression. I think, um, yeah, the, the problem is that scientists do not really interact with the rest of society. That's, let's be honest, also partially because they just spend so much time in the lab, partially because they're, I don't know, generally not the, the most social people in many cases. And many people go to science because they think this is a place where I can stay alone and like do the things I want. But I think, um, I don't think it's true. And again, 
in this i think uh working with 15 by 4 really opened my eyes a lot because our coordination like the organization team consists now of three people with scientific background either doing a phd or someone who finished the phd and three people with no science background one of whom is architect and the other two are from it and engineering and i can see the people really interested in this uh, in science and they want to know more. The problem is often that the scientists and non-scientists don't have a common language. And this is what where the help is needed from the science communication perspective, is to help scientists explain what they want to share in the simple words and help to bring together non-scientists and scientists. So I think the scientists are not doing this because they are... So scientists cannot explain themselves well to non-scientists, not because they think too much of them but just because they are not used to mm-hmm. so they really forget that most of the things we use they use to explain about their work are jargon and people don't really get what it is they forget that people yes they studied biology or physics in school but it was so long time ago and then they maybe remember some very basic concepts but they might not really get connect have a connection in their head between these words and their real life and uh, scientists need help to translate their messages in a simple word. But do you think, again, that's really truly possible? Because you mentioned architect, engineer, IT, that is still technical professionals. I mean, I don't even want to go into like philosophy or humanities because that's still academia. Let's say I I have like a master's in economics. I'm Mm. an accountant. Why should I be interested? And if I am, then okay, fine. Why would the scientist force himself or herself to dumb it down, let's say? Because that's the attitude that I at least get in the majority of groups that I've discussed this topic with where they say, okay, we, we can maybe explain it in other high-minded words to other academically trained people, not scientists, mm-hmm. but for the middleman, indeed, like you would really need to dumb it down so much that you wouldn't even recognize your work anymore. I think this is a misconception. Uh, you don't have, you should not dumb it down. You should just use simple language and there is a big difference between simplifying the idea and simplifying the language and again this is something we try to help scientists with mm-hmm. in the 15 by 4 we help them to see that you can explain everything you want to explain just if you do it step by step and if you use the language that is easy to grasp for anyone and i think that we often are successful mm-hmm. and then the magic happens because you can hear in the questions that people ask from the audience that they really understood mm-hmm. and they do ask smart questions so the problem was not why they wouldn't ask these questions before it was not because they are not smart enough but just because they could not grasp the idea and that's why they could not talk about this coming back to the um, accountant well yeah there are people who are not interested in science and this is also fine I just think there are enough people who are interested Mm -hmm. and all actually these are the people who make the most money again if we talk about taxes highly educated people with doing some more or less technical work. These are the ones who earn the most money and who gave the most to our economy. And they are usually interested in understanding science better. Then staying on the simple language track. So have you gotten feedback from your speakers that once they were forced to reframe their talk, that they understood what they were talking about better? (laughs) Well, no one confessed in that so far. (laughs) But the speakers were always happy. Uh, that we help them to simplify the uh, talk because they really got in contact with the audience in the end. And the people came to them and asked questions 
And I think what people felt, our speakers, they felt more enthusiasm about their work again because they, like other people told them, well, what you do is really cool. This is like incredible. And <laughs> I think this is also important for PhD students to sometimes look from a higher perspective and see that actually, even though on a day-to-day -day basis, you're doing something really small, but then in the end, this is part of a bigger picture and we do aim for big goals and we do come with important answers. I think this is something what speakers do get. Uh, the feeling of, I'm actually doing something really nice. That's the... And they also see that um, non-scientists respect scientists. They respect researchers and they think this is what you guys do is really nice. And you should be... You should keep doing that. Well, I hope that that would translate late to the soapbox event the wider audience so what what date is it uh, it's this saturday the coming saturday which is 7th of july saturday 7th of july audience class from 10 from 2 from to 5. Okay. Two, two, five. Yeah. is it female only or yeah there is additional uh side of the soapbox science event it's uh, also about promoting scientists as a role model in science and also to show or to break the um, it's about breaking the stereotype that the scientist is an old man with gray hair which most people imagine when you say the word scientist it's it's changing slowly but i think we can also help a bit with this showing that scientists are also women and we have 12 female speakers who will talk about the different areas of research they work in they are from different ages from phd students to professors and they also actually come from different countries, which I think is also nice to show to general public in Germany that um, international people are not just the people who bring problems, but actually also the people who do a lot for, for the country. And they also do research and help the country and the economy of the country to excel. Did you have any trouble recruiting speakers, especially females and being in public ah. and speaking is... A bit yeah, tricky. That's, a, that's a good point. Actually, I did not expect this to happen so much, but some people refused because they didn't want to speak on the street in front of unknown audience. And I think females have more problem with that than males. But in the end, we... We've got a good response from people. So we knew it's not going to be super easy because it's the first time this event is organized in Munich. No one knew about it, quite certain, even though it happened in Germany before, but it was in Berlin so far away and was not a big deal in the media, for example. So we knew it will be not so easy, but in the end, um, we've got enough speakers. And what is also nice that they really come from different topics. We have people doing mathematics. Space engineering, okay. Space engineering, maybe, yes. And biology, of course, we have some people from GSM as well. And also someone working in development of new materials. So it's really a, a very diverse topics, which I found also great. And we are happy that we were able to reach to the mm -hmm. different um, uh, different institutes in Munich in the end. How long are the talks? Because you have three hours in 12 speakers? Yes, we ha because four speakers talk at the same time. Oh, okay. Um, it's organized not in a like, lecture kind of style, but they have small stages, which are actually soap boxes. And the, the weird name comes from the UK. It's the um, tradition in Hyde Park. There is a speaker's corner where a person would stand up on the soap box and talk about what they want to talk about, often some political propaganda, but also like poetry and stuff mm -hmm. like this. 
Um, and in our case also there will be four soap boxes distributed around the Stadion's Platz and on each of them the person will stand, but it's expected that people come quite close. It should not be like a lecture that people stay far from the speaker and it should be very interactive. So the speakers have prepared short talks, but they also expect that people will ask mm -hmm. questions and then they can discuss everything around the topic and also about how to be a scientist and what is it like. Have you divided them thematically? Because if it's four at the same time, so have you grouped them like space engineering, material development, something like close? No, no? actually we try to do the uh, diversity, yes. Okay. First, some of our speakers will talk in English and some in German. So we oh. made a mixture of uh, like two speakers German, two speakers English. We made a mixture of also yeah topics so it's also fine if a person does not stay with one speaker for the whole hour he can stay or she can stay for one 10-15 minutes and then move to the next person or mm -hmm. yeah do as they wish so there is also a possibility to listen to all of them without losing i hope that you will have high attendance so thank you If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast from.